Hey everyone, this is Kevin Eslin, and you are listening to another episode of Folk Stories. Today, my guest is Vivian Hua, director of the Northwest Film Forum, a nonprofit film and art center dedicated to public dialogue and creative action through collective cinematic experiences. Prior to the Northwest Film Forum, Vivian was the communication manager for ICANN Wiki, a collaborative resource dedicated to simplifying the complex issues, policies, and players in the sphere of internet governance. Vivian was also editor-in-chief of Redefine Magazine, a print and web magazine focused on music and the arts. Vivian originally got a BA in sociology focused on law, society, and justice. Social justice has been a central theme in Vivian's life and reflected in the work that she does. In 2017, Vivian released the film Searching Skies, which was a narrative about a Syrian refugee family. The film was screened in 50 venues across the United States and was also accompanied by a discussion series where people could meet a Muslim in person, sometimes for the first time, and ask them questions. In today's episode, we talk about Vivian's vision for the Northwest Film Forum, Vivian's sudden decision to pursue film upon turning 30, and exploring social justice with film. And now, without any further ado, I give you Vivian Hua. Vivian, welcome to the show. Hi. There's a lot of places we could start, and I figure we start with your most recent position as a director of the Northwest Film Forum. Um, I believe you came into that position last October, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering, can you give us a little background about what the forum does and how you became involved? Yeah, so we're a nonprofit film center based in Capitol Hill, kind of the main heart of it, near uh, 12th Ave and Pike and Pine. And what we do is kind of everything from generative work with workshops for youth and adults to film exhibition and everything in between. We do a lot of fiscal sponsorships for um, film projects in town. Um, anything else you can think of, really, just like start to finish about the film process. And we're focused a lot on community building around it, not just with the film community, but with like nonprofits, community groups, uh, social justice type issues, multiculturalism, all that stuff. And then how did you first become involved with the NWFF? It's so like convoluted and long, but uh, <laughs> so I mean, I started out doing music and art journalism for like 12 years. Um, I still do it occasionally. But when I turned 30, I had kind of like a bit of a personal revelation where I was kind of like, well, I spent my entire 20s basically supporting other people's art and like only tangentially working on my own. So like, how do I work on my own now and had this calling of sorts to do film, um, specifically to write and direct. And I kind of changed my entire life course um, from music and art journalism to initially like doing live projections for bands and then eventually to making my own films. And my last film was called Searching Skies and it's about a Syrian refugee family that goes to an American family's house for Christmas dinner. And that film led me to an introduction to Northwest Film Forum's previous executive director, Courtney Sheehan. Um, and we both kind of simultaneously had this idea to do kind of a national screening and discussion series around anti-Islamophobia type issues because it was around the time of the first Muslim ban announcement. Um, so yeah, we paired, paired up on that. I coincidentally had kind of like a step back from my other job in internet governance. Um, so I had this huge chunk of time to just like dedicate to like community organizing for like 
a few months. Um, and then after that, we had like 50 screenings around the country um, in over half the states. And after that one day, I was just like, hey, Courtney, I'm stepping back from my other job. If you happen to have an opening at Northwest Film Forum or need any work, let me know. And this was when I was living in L.A. And they happened to just, again, coincidentally, have an opening uh, for a graphic design position. So I moved back up here. And I guess like a year and a half later, she left and I stepped into that role. I think... What she just said is enough material to last for the entire rest of for recording, and it might just do that. Um, and something else is, it reminds me a lot of Malaska's Tessa Holtz, which uh-huh. we both know, but she mentioned a lot about how the things that she ended up doing in life happened a lot through serendipity and kind of like the universe calling out to her and finding the right opportunities at the right times. When you know, you were going from that 20 to 30 transition and you had that realization that you've been supporting other people versus focusing on your own work. How did you come about that? Was that something you've been thinking about a lot or did, like, on your 30th birthday, like, did the weight of everything just come crashing down? But what happened? Well, um, to be very candid... Should I be very candid? Let me think about this. Um, well, I had thought about something needing to change for a while. I was living in Portland at the time, and I like knew I needed to move away from Portland, and that change needed to happen, but I wasn't sure what. And I was actually dating someone at the time. I was like, I think I need to move. And he was like, that makes me feel super weird. I was like, yeah, but <laughs> this is like just what needs to happen. Um, I would say I had a bit like a, of a, like a spiritual vision, sort of, that was very explicit in telling me that I needed to pursue film. Um, and at the time, it was not something I had considered at all. So it was like really kind of shocking and interesting. Um, but then once I kind of shifted my energy towards that direction, a lot of things happened. Uh, I applied for this grant to get filmmaking equipment, and it just like... I instantly got it, and later I found out a bunch of people had been waitlisted for like a really long time waiting for that grant. Um, similarly, Tessa gave me a $10,000 book translation gig to translate her grandma's memoir. It paid for my film school, and it was just like perfect timing. And I was like, kind of unqualified to do it. Like I could do it, but it was like way more work for me than for someone else. Um, so just all these things kind of lined up in that way. And when you started doing film, did you find that your previous background in music um, had, like, helped or, like, came in handy? Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say music specifically, but the way I had approached the publication, so the publication was called Redefine, and it started off as, like, kind of a straightforward music magazine back in 2004 when it was, like, only major labels kind of thing, but as the music industry changed and music journalism and art journalism kind of, like faltered and died (laughs) Um, it became like less interesting to me to write just straight up reviews and it went more towards like how do the arts intersect with other um, issues like sociology or social issues or politics or spirituality so a lot of like what that like kind of foundation of theoretical thinking that the publication was built on, on translated really well to like directing and like managing people and also now to Northwest Film Forum just kind of a similar kind of community model where everyone gets a stake in the conversation. Got it. And as I understand it, when you went to film school, um, you didn't finish the program, but you managed to shoot your thesis film um, ahead of time. How did that happen? 
I honestly like don't really know. It's another one of those things where like, okay, this just happened. Um, yeah, I guess I just like somehow had talked to the director of the department, and he barely knew me, but he like reached out to me and like asked me if I wanted to do some like. TA type position, and I couldn't do it at the time, but that like put me on his radar. And then when it came time to just apply for the thesis like course, I was just like, "Hey, can I like get into this?" I wasn't even planning on not doing the rest of the classes, but (laughs) I just like took them out of order, sort of. And then once I shot the thesis, I'm like, "Wait, I actually don't need to take like these editing classes and like these kind of like pointless classes." So I just peaced out. (laughs) And was that scary to do? I mean, I would imagine. Like, part of doing programs like this is so you can, like, walk out with this credential that, you know, you show other people, and especially for you, because you didn't have a film background. Um, I imagine that, like, at least if I put myself in that shoes, that would have been a very terrifying decision. Mm. I guess for me, my whole life has been about, like, kind of piecing things together DIY style and teaching myself stuff. So, like, I didn't go to school for graphic design, but that's, like, what I did my whole life. I started building websites when I was, like, a freshman in high school just because, well, my parents were super strict and Asian, so I wasn't allowed to go out. So I did a lot of, like, solo website. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Website building time. So it's a lot of, like, teaching myself. So film was kind of a similar situation, but a little different because, like, it requires so many people and so much knowledge. So that's kind of why I went to school because it was like, okay, here's this one thing where I don't feel like I actually know how to do it all myself like I had ideas in my head but I didn't know how to accomplish them without some training sort of in fact I failed at some that I had in my mind that I couldn't translate and you know you mentioned that part of the reason that you ended up going to film school was because you've had a a vision experience and we can talk about this as much as you're comfortable with but that's something Tessa also mentioned this that I should ask you about Social experiments and divination and <laughs> dream analysis. Okay, so, where do we start on that? <laughs> well, maybe like just getting started on like how did you get started? Like why was that something that became important in your life? Mm-hmm. I guess like I've always just kind of been open to it, but not in this way where I was like seeking it out that hard. Um, there are certain things more than others, like dreams. I've had dreams that have been just kind of psychic and. Uh, Sue saying like I've had occasions where me and a friend have had the exact same dream on the exact same night or just dreams that like tell me what to do and then later those things come true um, so those have been interesting I've looked into it but earlier than that I just had various occasions um, running into tarot and divination stuff which I didn't take like super seriously at first it was more just like hey here's this thing I ran into so I'm gonna do it and it happened enough times like probably like after six times where I'm like okay well this is like years of my life that this has proven to be somewhat accurate um so what is it and I'm just gonna look into doing it myself so now I do readings for friends as well I don't do it like outside of that I do it for trade um but they're always like insanely accurate and like I can't think too hard about like what makes it work because that's crazy um but I just know that it is like useful so do you remember um or something that you feel comfortable sharing of like a reading either that you had or that you did for somebody else that turned out to be either like happening later on or important? I mean, basically every reading in the, I feel like I'm getting better at it, but every reading in the recent past has been like very accurate. Like, um, I can tell people when they're going to like break up with someone. I've 
told recently a couple friends like you're gonna leave you're getting ready to get a new job like that sort of thing and it's all kind of like come true on a short time like on the express timeline so to speak is there ever a time when you find something that you feel like okay i can see what's happening but probably shouldn't say it Mm. like do you worry about responsibility and nope (laughs) (laughs) i haven't had an incident like that yet yeah if it's there i'll say it got it I went around the country a, a few years back interviewing a bunch of um, psychics or life coaches type. Not like the people who are at kind of the corner stores with the neon signs, like not those people, but like kind of more privately behind the scenes, like work at a massage parlors type psychics, quote unquote. Um, and they had some pretty interesting stories about just like seeing symbols over and over again. And sometimes they would seem really dumb and they would ignore it. Um, but then it would just keep repeating and then finally they would say it and then it would be like, okay, that makes sense. So one example was this lady was like, okay, I was talking to this guy and I kept hearing a voice that said banjo, ask him about the banjo. She's like, well, I'm not going to do that. Like, that's stupid. Why would I ask him about the banjo? And it happened three times. And after the third time, she's just like, okay, I, this is really weird, but is there something about a banjo? And he's like, oh my God, I've been wanting to play the banjo since I was like a child or something like that. So basically if I see it, I will say it. And you strike me as the sort of person that would... Now that you're the director of the NWFF, do you have um, a typical day where... What do you spend your time doing now? It's freaking everything. There's no typical day. Every day is um, very different. Um, a lot more time out of the office kind of doing stuff like this, which is cool because it's always my long-term goal to not spend the 9 to 5 in front of the computer. Um, I mean, it's like a mixture of meetings with different community partners who we're doing programs with, um, brainstorming development stuff, um, talking to staff about like strategies on what we're going to move forward with on marketing or workshops or grants or whatever. So um, when I went to the NWFF, I think one of your like founding mission statements is public dialogue and creative action through cinematic experience. Mm-hmm. Could you break that down and like what does that mean and what are you guys doing behind those words? Yeah, so I mean that actually changed a couple years ago with the previous executive director. So before that, it was very much focused, kind of not explicitly, but like primarily on film, Northwest Film Forum as a film center and a film forum. This idea um, around like creating um, public inciting public dialogue and creative action is about like creating collective experiences that are film centered yes but like also more than that like because there's so much of this kind of mentality of signing up for Netflix just watching Netflix at home in your bed like not caring about fidelity not caring about like the communal aspect of film that makes film going so exciting so that's kind of the type of thing we're trying to promote like how, it, how do you use film as a way of getting people together, of talking about stuff, and also hopefully like uniting people around a, a goal or a mission that makes them want to do anything from like party together and talk to each other about whatever to like building a film community and working on films to doing some activist work. It's kind of like all... So it's been a while since I've like gone out and watched a film. Mm-hmm. I guess I fall into not even the Netflix guy, I just haven't watched anything in a long time. But I do know that, like, when I used to go out and watch films, something that bothered me is that, you know, here we were, we were supposed to be spending time together, we're, like, friends and having this shared experience, but during the film, like, 
you're just watching the film and a lot of times like afterwards like you're gonna scatter and um, you know some friends like suggest like oh you're going on a date like you should take them to your film and for me it's always like well like it just seems like there's not that much interaction happening in a film and I guess like am I doing this wrong or is there another way in which you can do it that it becomes a more collective experience I guess that's what we're trying to do but totally it's like you could go to film and then you could not talk to each other afterwards and then that's it um, so we try to do a lot of things afterwards, like either have group discussions or have panels where people come in and like give you knowledge that you might not otherwise know. Um, or sometimes we do happy hours before film, and we're also always welcoming of people to come like a bit early to just like hang out in our lobby because it's like kind of like a really comfortable space. Um, so there's like a lot of things we're trying. I mean, I think every film could still be better in terms of like community building but you know there's only so much you can do right yeah when you host one of these discussions after a film what might that look like does it have a moderator and a, or and um, asking people questions is it a panel or what's formats it's like every kind you can think of so uh, we've had iter- iterations where, like, CDOC, the Seattle Documentary Association, helps lead a dis- discussion afterwards that's facilitated. Um, through them, that's just, like, kind of more like a group dialogue as opposed to, like, a panel or speaker up front. We've had ones where it was, like, one person asking an expert questions. We've had one where it's, like, a family doing storytelling about, um, like cultural norms in their home country it's all kinds this weekend we have this thing called by design film festival um and that has just like a giant panel after almost every screening around designer architecture issues um so it's any kind and it's that's kind of similar of how we just program we do programming that's our film programmer like leads it and she just brings in independent films that are doing well on the festival circuit we also have just community members coming to us and pitching stuff. And then we'll kind of decide based on, like, is this aligned with our mission and our artistic, like, aesthetic? And if it is, we'll make it a part of our programming. If it's, like, not quite there, but we still want to support it, people can, like, rent our space. Or they can, like, become a sponsor and pay for a screening and help us book speakers and we'll just, like, promote it. So it's kind of like every type of iteration of whatever you can think of. Got it. When um, when you guys are selecting films to screen and to focus on for the year, being that nowadays there's just so much out there, um, what is the decision process? What criteria do you use and what themes are you looking for? Yeah, so we, I mean, it's a mixture of just films we think look great based on like our personal tastes, um, films that are doing well on the festival market, our audience loves um, music documentaries, art films, anything about like creators creating art. Um, so we cater to a lot of those. We do a lot of kind of like restorations of old films that are like classics that people want to see on the screen that they could watch at home, but there's like the new restorations to make it look better on screen, so we show them. Um, there's also, I mean, there's healthy competition in town. Seattle's a lot of theaters like SIF, it has Grand Illusion, it has all these theaters that are showing movies that are similar to what we're showing. So there is an aspect of we don't always get everything we want. So it is kind of a negotiation between like our artistic taste and like what is available to us. Kind of. Um, so 
In 2017, I think, uh, was when you launched Searching Skies, mm -hmm. um, which was your own film about the Syrian refugees. Can you talk about how you got started uh, on that and what it led to? Yeah, so the film I started writing in, oh, it feels like an eternity ago, I guess like late 2016, and it was because a, a friend's family who had helped resettle a Syrian refugee family in Southern California, they were a Christian family, um, kind of told me a story that happened over Christmas dinner at, at their family gathering one year, and it was just kind of stuck in my head for a while. And then when it came time to just like write something that was just the story that came out, it was like a family narrative about uh, what happens when a refugee family goes over to a Christian family's house over Christmas dinner and the kind of like contentious debate both for and against their presence that happens and is sort of reflected in our larger society. And um, I don't know, it just naturally came out and I, I had a team assembled and consulted a lot of Syrian people and the actors in the film were Syrian refugees themselves who managed to leave before things got really bad there, but they were able to bring like an air of authenticity and also help me like write or tweak, I guess, certain aspects of the script so that it was more authentic culturally. Um, yeah. Is there anything else? Yeah. Uh, well, something I know that you mentioned when you were releasing the film, mm -hmm. um, I believe you had screenings all over the States, mm -hmm. and those screenings were also accompanied with discussions. Um, why was it important to you to have those discussions, and how were those discussions like? Yeah, so we organized this thing called the Seventh Art Stand, which was it has had multiple iterations since that have been just centered around social justice, civil rights issues, and then paired with um, discussions similar to what we do at Northwest Film Forum, but at different venues across the states. Um, this particular one, again, like every discussion looked different, and we basically reached out to different theaters and community groups, and we're like, hey, here are a list of films you could show around the topic of anti-Islamophobia. We're just providing the framework you sh you can work with community partners to kind of build out like a discussion around it and so a lot of people worked with their local chapters of like the council on american and islamic relations or just like local muslim advocacy organizations and put some context to just like the anti-islamophobia rhetoric that was happening and anti-immigration rhetoric um and a lot of people you know, met their first Muslim person for the first time through this screening series, which was really cool, and were able to, at times, ask very difficult questions face-to-face -face with people and have, like, real answers and real thoughtful responses. When you were doing the screenings and you released the film, did you have some sort of goal in mind or some sort of impact that you wanted either the film or the discussions to have on people? I guess I didn't really have any like quantifiable targets or anything like that. It was because this is my first film. I didn't actually know it was possible. I just knew that I didn't want it to go the kind of traditional route of like, I'm nobody. I'm releasing this film. I'm just putting it on the internet. And it's just gonna like die. Um, so I, I thought it would be more meaningful to like bring some context to this, especially because it was the type of film that, even though it has Syrian refugees, I wrote it from the standpoint of this kind of like Midwest um, young. 
man who has a lot of, I would say, confusion and potential bigotry in his heart. Um, I wrote it from his perspective because I felt like I can more accurately reflect that, even though that's not me, obviously. Um, but speak to that like American culture of um, othering more authentically than from the Syrian refugee standpoint. Um, so I really wanted to get this film into like some of those areas, like into the Midwest and into the South, and that that was a, a goal I wanted. And through the Seventh Art Stand, was able to do some of that, and through film festivals. And when you got these films in these like Midwestern towns and areas, how did you, or did you do anything specific to like get the sort of people that I guess the film? I don't know. If, targeted was the right word, but like that might have had the same opinions as uh, your protagonist, like the person, or like how do you know that, you know, the sorts of people that only saw the film were the sorts of people that were already inclined towards changing their views in the first place? Right, and it's hard. It's hard to know. I don't know. I have no idea. Um, it's just the hope that someone out there is, is watching it who will benefit from it. Um, but I mean, I know from just some of the discussions that did happen in the larger Seventh Art Stand that sometimes people would come to these anti-Islamophobia screenings and have kind of hateful rhetoric. Or, or if not intentionally hateful, they still had something to learn. Um, so I was at the Arab American Museum in Detroit, and even there... Um, we were at an Arab American museum and there were still questions that came up that by current standards would feel kind of ignorant or bigoted but the person saying them was not intending that he was most he was pretty much saying like I have friends who are colored like basically um, and he still had education there even though he was on the side of being an quote unquote ally so There's, like, a spectrum, right? So I'm pretty sure, like, maybe even if there wasn't someone who was as bigoted as the anti-hero in the film, like, there would still be people who would learn from it. For people who are listening to this right now, what would you say are, like, the most common misconceptions or fallacies that people hold either intentionally or unintentionally about Islam and Muslims? Mm-hmm. That you've, that you've seen? I mean, I think people take in this kind of narrative that is seen on the television, right? If you've never met a person, this happens with everything. Like, it happens with African-Americans who, like, are shown in a negative light on the media. Um, when people only have seen, like, ISIS or ISIL on television and are like, this is what Muslims are, um, it's not accurate because Islam is not monolithic. And especially in, like, cities like Seattle, which have, like, a huge Muslim population and, like, a sec like first generation, second generation population, there are, like, many Muslim youth who are, like, just normal American people. The other day I was at, like, the supermarket at 7 a.m. and this Muslim girl next to me wearing a hijab was buying, like, two giant packs of Jolly Ranchers and, like... NOS <laughs> like energy drink at like 7 a.m. I was just like dude you're just like any other American you're so normal um, so I think that's that's the takeaway really it's like we think it's a certain thing when it's so many things and if you look at every like Islam culture around the world they're so different from each other yeah I think a lot of it just comes down to like being exposed to people that are different than you mm -hmm. um, and I think something that 
looking back at my own history, that has helped a lot. And I would imagine similar for you, it's like moving around a lot and just being exposed to a lot of different sorts of peoples and cultures. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I would say, like, even with among Christianity, it's similar. Like, Christianity gets a bad rap right now as well, even amongst, like, probably, I would say, like, liter- liberal people who would be like, yeah, Muslim, Americans, cool. But then, like, suddenly, like, Christians are stigmatized. And Christianity is also not, like, monolithic. There's, like, the super conservative anti, like, whatever, um... Evangelicals, but there's also like Christians who are very into like civil rights and like promoting LGBTQ values, etc. So it's, I don't know, it's just everyone's complex and we should just not paint anyone with broad strokes, really. Yeah, typecasting is, you, you, you always lose details, and when anything that is big enough to typecast is also big enough that. You lose sight of like the individual differences. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that, like for you, I think you went to schools and and had a degree in social justice, um, sociology, so, sociology with a focus on social justice, law, society, and social okay. uh, social policy. Or something. Okay, good. I'm not just totally making this <laughs> up. Um, and that seems like a theme that has struck me for a lot of your work is this element of social justice in it. How did that come about? I guess I've just, like, always been kind of into it. <laughs> like, it's funny because me and one of my ex-boyfriends, we, like, put together this timeline of, like, songs that had influenced us growing up. And all of mine were, like, just, like, lyrically, like, social justice-oriented. It's, like, all my favorite songs are always about that on some level. So, I don't know. It's just, like, ingrained in me. And I actually, like, had a struggle with it for a while. Like, up until fairly recently, I would say maybe, like, three years ago I accepted it. But up until that, I would sometimes be, like... Ah, it's so annoying to just like care about this stuff. Like it would be easier if I just was into frivolous stuff sometimes, but it's just I just had to accept like this is just embedded into like whoever I am, like caring about this crap. We need more people like <laughs> you out there. There's plenty. Yeah. Thanks. So uh, nowadays, are you still shooting films? Are you still thinking about making films, or um, what's that been like? I'm definitely thinking about it. I'm working on writing stuff for sure. Um, it might be a second before I can make my own production again, um, but I am working on Friends films. Uh, I'm going to be assistant directing a Friends like narrative short soon, and I'm working on editing my own TV pilot uh, that I co-wrote with a friend. So there's projects. There's what do they call it? Coals burning in the fires. But yeah, it's gonna. <laughs> they're incubating so. time. Got it. Yeah. Um, when. So you're immersed in like the art world, the film world, and you know you're working on directing a film form. You're doing film on the side. Um, do you ever feel like it's too much? Like you're just doing film all the time, and do you ever worry about burnout? Sure. <laughs> I think anyone in an executive director position needs like self care and like balance. Um, I think I'm starting to like figure it out better. It was. Uh, kind of harder the first couple months trying to navigate the space between like because I'm not necessarily a huge extrovert or anything like that so but I can fake it really well um so trying to navigate that space of how much personal time is needed to offset this kind of like really public time um figuring it out though and I I would say it's a little bit easier in this field because I'm doing things I like and I care about so 
like we're doing a film centered mission for social justice and change. Um, it's not like I'm just working with like battered domestic abuse victims all the time. So there's like a joy in and levity in everything we do, even despite it being like hard work. Yeah, um, I have friends that are social workers, and my fiance is a nurse, mm-hmm. and so you know, like they get a lot out of the work that they do because. You're helping people mm-hmm. um, every day, but it is hard. Um, and sometimes, just like listening to the stories themselves, just it's not like that they make me sad. Well, they do make me sad, but it's also just like, oh my god, there's so much just like psychic toll on just doing that day in and day out. Totally. How does she handle her stress? Or so for her right now, she's well. Part of it is that she's doing it part time because mm-hmm. um, she, for her, it's just it gets too much. Um, I think a lot of, especially nurses, um, they you build up a defense mechanism where you put some distance between yourself and the patients. Mm-hmm. Um, but she has a really hard like she doesn't do that, which is why like these cases affect her more. Right. Um, and so one way is just not doing it every single day. Mm-hmm. That yeah. makes sense. Also, like meditation helps. A lot, yeah. yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, I've been doing meditation. Um, I don't know if you use any apps like Headspace or like Sam Harris Waking Up. But Sam Harris Waking Up? No, I just yeah. kind of sit, but I've heard good things about some of those. Yeah, yeah I've been um, actually thinking of doing a meditation retreat this year. Oh, so like cool. finding a, something longer, like a one week or ten day one. Mm-hmm. The own Alaska one? Um, I don't know which one yet. Cool. I It's something that... I have on my to-do list every week, and I've been ignoring every week. Cool. So. I would be curious what you find, because I need to do that as well at some point. Yeah. Um, what, you know, I'm wondering what other, um, like, either routines or techniques you've been using to just, you know, give you some time to recharge or recover. Like, what's been working then? Yoga yeah. is huge. Um, yeah. Yoga is huge. I go on really long walks, like, insane, crazy person walks. Although, as I'm getting older, like, it's less okay on my body to do it. But I will regularly walk, like, eight miles. It's, like, normal. <laughs> well, eight miles is, like, pushing the upper limit, but yeah. And when you do these walks, do you walk around the neighborhood? Do you go somewhere special to do the walk? It's like, if I need to go somewhere often, I'll just, like, slot that time. I walk to work often. That's, like, an hour. Just, like, do it. And when you walk, do you listen to music or mm-hmm. do you just walk? <laughs> listen to music, frequently sing aloud. You know. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, well, if you're walking Capitol Hill, especially, I'm sure that you just... Blend right in. Yeah, yeah. nobody's going to notice. Yeah, well, it's like some of my biggest joy when I see people who are like really rocking out and singing in public. It's just like, yes, yes, friend, you rule. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, something that I'm curious about is in film, there... It's been a lot now with VR mm-hmm. and you know alternative ways of showing media. What do you think of that space, and is that something that you're looking into? I am looking into. I have a VR script that I really want to get made at some point. I need to actually get on that. Um, I I don't know. I'm I'm conflicted about it because it, it is like this great tool for empathy building blah 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 um, you can put people in an experience that makes them feel like oh I am an immigrant or oh I'm going through this difficult thing and blah <laughs> but then at the same time it's terrifying like I just in general find tech 
in various kinds pretty terrifying so this is just another thing and also i think it's interesting that like vr's hugest developments are probably happening around porn like where's that gonna go who knows what's that gonna turn out like well i think porn has been the precursor to almost all technology unfortunately <laughs> like the internet high screen television true like, a lot of that yeah um i was talking to another friend who he's a film director who his thing with vr is that you don't as a director have control of where you know your audience is looking mm. like with film it's very directed you choose every shot you choose every cut you choose exactly what people see versus vr people are free to like not even look at like the main scene well sort of though there have been ways that people have worked with that so like sound design's huge in vr like you can cue a sound in a certain spatial direction that it's not forcing someone to look there but it's encouraging them to look there um so you can there are ways you can work with it and still kind of direct them it's just is changing the means of direction yeah that's fair that's so when you think about film um either the subject matter or the technology where do you think it is like right now and where do you see it going um I mean, so Netflix recently, I forget the name of it, but did that, like, choose-your-own-adventure thing? Did you watch that? I did not. Did you hear about it? Um, why don't you describe it, just in case? It's literally, like, a choose-your-own-adventure thing. So you watch it, and then options pop up where you can go, like, A or B direction. Um, It's a little bit flawed, because you run into dead ends a lot, and then they can start you over really easily. Um, But I think that's going to happen more, and Netflix has already kind of built the platform for that to happen. Um, so that I'm sure they're going to capitalize on since they're the only ones doing it right now. Um, other than that, I I mean, I think just like a democratization of it even more in the way that like photography has become so kind of status quo, um, more people making films through just easy, like their phones and whatnot. Um, I think there will also be just a movement towards getting people trying to get people back in the theater um there's like a lot of directors speaking out right now i just saw like christopher nolan post the thing just like trying to make films that actually are like big enough of a deal or like cinematically epic enough that people need to go to the theater and that that's like worth it for them so all those things while you were talking about um like netflix and choose your own adventure I've, and it made me think of another direction that I don't know if it's film, but, like, video is going, is you have a lot of, um, like, live video on Facebook, on Instagram, there's TikTok, um, or it's not necessarily live video, but, like, short-form video. Um, Where do you see that in relation to, like, long cinematograph, like, movies or films to, like, these short couple-second snippets or just off-the-cuff shot on your phone kind of films? I wish I knew. I feel so, like, out of touch with that stuff. We have, like, some younger people who help out at the office, and I'm just like, oh, TikTok. I haven't even heard of it until you came in the office. Um, I don't know. I don't know how to use this stuff. It makes me feel old, and I'm not even that old. <laughs> but, yeah. If it makes you feel better, I haven't had any experience with it either, but just knowing that it's out there and that people are using them and that they're of a different generation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I see people who use, like, Instagram Live and stuff really well, and I'm always, like, impressed. I'm like, cool, you did, like, a really cool thing with storytelling through, like, these various little frames. 
but I haven't figured out how it works, and I don't know, like, what the longevity is. Seems like it's probably going to keep going because people's attention spans are so short. Well, maybe if I, you know, a long-form film makes a comeback, then that'll change things again. Yeah, or maybe, like, a... Yeah, I wonder if anyone's trying to make a long-form film through these, like, live snippets. <laughs> well, if... And that is something that NWFF is <laughs> maybe uh, something. Looking at. Have you have you watched that John Cho film Searching or have you heard of it? Uh, no, I have not. So it's a, the whole film takes place on his. I haven't seen it, but it takes place on his desktop, and he's going through like he's pulling up various footage to kind of like see what happens. Um, I think over. I think he's trying to solve, solve a mystery over or something, um, and it's just like through different screens like there's footage from his Instagram or, like, whatever that's popping up on his computer screen. I don't know. I don't know why I brought that. <laughs> but that's, like, using this new, like, kind of various types of technology to put it in a format of a long-form film. Yeah, that sounds cool. If you have the action, the title and the link... It's called can... Searching. Okay. Yeah. Then that'll also be included in the show notes and everything. Cool. Um, I noticed that you had mentioned somewhere that Seattle that there were more female directors uh, in Seattle than is typical. Mm -hmm. Why is it? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I think um, in part because, like, the industry here is not really, like, an industry like it is in L.A. and New York. Like, there's not a huge amount of um, support or incentive. There is a film incentive, but it, like, for the past few years has gone towards, like, one large project as opposed to being disseminated to a lot of different projects. So I think there's just, like, a lot of homegrown energy, and because of that, um, for whatever reason, a lot of female directors and writers. Do you think that it's changed the way um, film is made in Seattle? Like, what the output is? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I would say that most of the films that get a large amount of attention, like, on the festival circuit in Seattle are female-made films, which is awesome. Um, I don't know if that's going to continue going or, like, what the trend is long-term, but we are finding a lot of the people who are taking our classes right now are women, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, um, and what sort of classes do you guys offer? Is it for people who haven't shot films or people who are directing and want to get better every kind um we are launching some like comedy script writing classes soon um casting workshops we have like kind of start to finish narrative filmmaking and documentary filmmaking like almost like boot camp sort of things editing is a regular one all kinds yeah so it's like any... There are a lot of filmmakers who already make film that just want to get better, who take some classes, and then there's some who don't know, like, but have an interest and are able to get their footing. So before we uh, did this interview, I um, asked Tessa for themes that I should ask you about. Huh? And she described you as a professional wampler, which is her term... Uh, and Kali Wampler is to travel purposefully with a vague destination. <laughs> and so she said that both, you know, creatively and geographically that you've traveled and wandered in many directions. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that and how you've wandered and how that has impacted you. Yeah, I would say my whole life has been very much about kind of just like... I remember some friends asked me, like, why did you move to Portland, like, a, a while back when I moved to Portland? And I was just like, I don't know, like, the wind? 
Like, that's how I would feel like my life has been. Just, like, I'm just following whatever, wherever it gets blown, sort of. And not frivolously. Like, it is with, like, a an intuitive spirit. Um, but I don't also make plans because I've discovered that making plans for me, it's not the way with everyone. But for me, it's just, like, not effective. Before I took this job at Northwest Film Forum, I was actually planning to move to New York and had, like, an apartment lined up and everything. And then this happened. It's like, okay, well, I just can't plan anything. It's just, life just happens as it does. So. And then wandering. I, I, for a long time, my entire life is, like, any money I save from working at full-time jobs goes towards traveling. It's a little bit different now because of this job, but, yeah. Yeah. Now that um, you have this director job here, what is your vision for NWFF? Like, where do you hope to take it? So, I mean, for a while now, Northwest Film Forum has been about kind of opening ourselves up to, like, different kinds of community, not just a niche kind of filmmaker community. And that's really the vision we're seeing. Like, we're seeing a lot of people come to us who are like, we really want to do this program. No one else will do it with us. We want to do it with you. And um, defining community broadly, not just in terms of, like, film and media makers, um, but, like, poets and interdisciplinary artists who use film as a part of their work. Additionally, like, also the the old film crowd we have been servicing forever, as well as, like, new makers. Just, like, everyone. My goal is, like, to have it be everyone. There's a lot of, like, conversation around, like, POC and women filmmakers, etc., um, and yes, we want all those things and we're searching for all those things, but like, I just want the narrative to change and have it be inclusive of like everyone rather than calling out all the populations all the time. It's just like, let's just have everyone under the roof. And the greatest joys are when we have like a screening night with like two or three events happening at the same time. And it's like old people who came to watch this art house film with like weird kind of experimental porn stuff we are showing like experimental porn stuff these days in VR yeah, not in VR yeah. <laughs> but like yeah just like having all those audiences under the group like people who would maybe never talk to each other and never see each other on the street just under the same roof maybe they still won't talk to each other but maybe they will yeah so creating experiences for like diverse communities to just interact have you found that doing anything specifically that helps get new communities into the door I will say just, I mean, A, me coming into this role and the artistic director coming into her role, we're both women of color, has definitely like energetically shifted some things where we have seen different types of communities coming to us just kind of naturally. And also just the messaging that like we are a community organization, we are literally open to taking anyone's ideas. Like... It's like an open solicitation policy. We won't necessarily like run with any idea. We do reject stuff, um, but we're open to listening. And that's not a common model with film centers like this. So that, that has changed, I think, a lot of people's um, views on what we do. Um, now I'm going to shift to some quick questions. That The questions are brief, but the answers don't have to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so first is, what is... Um, the last book that you read or the last book that you know has had an impact but changed your mind about something yeah Rebecca Solnit's um I think it's called How to Get Lost in the Woods or something like that it's about wandering it's about um it's like a super poetic 
I don't think that's the title. It's close though. Um, it's just like really poetic musings on like how to get lost both in physical space and in like your own personal metaphysical intellectual space. Yeah, it's cool. That sounds exactly like the sort of book you would be. <laughs> yeah, I know it's like typical. Yeah, but a friend lent it to me and like it blew my mind. And it was like one of those where I read it and then I couldn't stop writing myself, which is cool. Next question. Do you have any sort of rituals that you do every day, like morning, evening, whether it be meditation or like taking a walk? Definitely. Um, let me see. I definitely do some aspect of yoga every day. I'd say that's the only kind of always. Um, walking is very common. I wish meditation were more common, but those would be the thing. Occasionally, I'll go through phases where I pull like a tarot card every day, every morning. Um, that's not right now, but if. You were doing something totally unrelated to film right now. What do you think that might be? Hmm, that's a good question. I like that. Probably going back to journalism, honestly. Finding a way to make journalism work. <laughs> I think a lot of people are doing that right now. <laughs> I know. It's difficult, though. I think that's partially why I stopped doing it. It's like, oh, this is not profitable, but it's fun. If you were to go back to journalism, what would you write about? Kind of the same stuff. I like doing kind of journalism. Well, I'm really nerding out about cultural space preservation right now and space in general. So I think that's like an aspect that I really kind of want to explore. And I am exploring right now in this current role as well, because it obviously pertains to our film forum as well, because we don't own our space. And lots of arts organizations around town do not own their space. And I think as the city's changing, everyone's kind of like thinking about that. Like, how do we long term preserve arts? It's I mean, we can apply for grants every year to just sustain ourselves on a basic level, but that's not, like, long-term sustainability space is. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess on that topic, especially since Seattle, the city is changing so much, um, as far as, like, preserving the old, how, how do you think that should be balanced? Like, if you could implement a policy, how w might that look like? <sighs> I, I mean, I think the city is trying to do a lot of things. They're experimenting with kind of ways to collect money to use towards cultural space preservation or creation. I think it probably needs more people on board because um, the Office of Arts and Culture is like spearheading a lot of that and it needs kind of citywide or maybe even statewide support to put more money and backing behind it. I think this isn't a policy. I think in general, people just need to understand the importance of the arts like more broadly not just in terms of like it gives us frivolous entertainment but like what is a city without art like why do people come to seattle because it has things to do it has this reputation of nirvana or whatever um those are all like art related things that people take for granted even though people reap the benefits of it they just don't want to put the money towards it yeah i think so when i was uh working at amazon i used to work in a lot of like networking issues mm -hmm. and the network, like the internet or the power, it's one of those things that you don't really think about until it's gone, and then you realize there's this large gaping void in your right. life. Um, for me right now, it's every time Comcast goes down and I realize I can't do anything. Um, and I'm not com trying to compare art to Comcast, <laughs> but I guess I am making that analogy that it's something that you don't realize how much of a goal it plays in your life until it's no longer there. Totally. 
Yeah, and I don't know how to change that. And that was the frustrating thing about working in the music industry, too, where it's like no one's making money off of music streaming anymore. They're making money off of shows, and that's kind of a similar thing to why we're doing like an experience in cinema because that's the type of thing that people will pay money for and people will come out for. They're not going to pay money for streaming stuff anymore. Um, but that that culture of just like not respecting it enough to give money towards it is is crazy. I, <laughs> I don't know how to fix it though, but it's it needs to be addressed and people need to be made aware of like the decisions they're making there. Yeah, especially I think in art where, you know, when you publish something, you're trying to get it out there and have as many people experience it or enjoy it in some way. But at the same time, it's, you know, how do you make a living through that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess in your experience of doing this and seeing other people do this, what, um, what have you seen that works? Or like what sort of different angles have you seen people take this? I mean, I just think now people just need to get like all super inventive. Like everything has to be not just like... Uh, let's go back to music like it's not just like you're releasing an album you're releasing an album with a music video album that like helps you get press because just releasing an album isn't enough or just like it's everything comes down to like a crazy marketing gimmick these days or like cross i mean in a less negative light cross community partnerships is is huge and it's helpful and that's what's make made our work more sustainable like if we were just promoting films by ourselves we wouldn't i don't think do as well but because almost like i would say like probably like 30 percent of our film programming now has some kind of community partnership on board and it's increasing as well those are all things that help everyone essentially so i think the idea of lifting up not just yourself but the entire arts community is important not just even arts community just entire community of people who are doing rad stuff yeah I think also the the note about community is also a great note to transition on because mm-hmm. um, we're getting close to the end and I'm going to transition to my closing questions. And the first question I usually like to ask my guests is about something that has recently inspired you. And this could be something from your own life or something that you've seen in the world. Can you give me yours? <laughs> oh, uh, touche. So this is going to... I know, it's going to be a little cliche since I kind of talked about it, but I'm getting married this year. Yeah. And so my fiance is a nurse, and she, um, we talked a little bit about this before, but it's incredible to me that she is still able to do nursing while not becoming a jaded nurse mm-hmm. or being keeping that distance from her patients and not, and not investing in their outcomes. Yeah. And for her, like, I'm just impressed that she can't even do that job just because of how empathetic she is and how much, like, it hurts her when, like, other people are in pain. And so just her most recent stories about, like, the things that she sees and what she feels is, like, for me, it's just really easy to withdraw and just say, like, okay, I'm done feeling, you know, going to check out. And But she doesn't do that, so. That's cool. I love that. Um, you're inspired by your fiance. That's great. <laughs> That's great. I mean, I'm similarly, I would say if I had to go to something, I'm, I'm like super stoked on a re- new relationship I'm in. Uh, and it's been a long time. So it's, it's inspiring to be inspired by the feeling of like mutual appreciation in a, in a cool and like really real, like exploratory way. Yeah. My next question is, 
Um, what is something that people might not know about you or might be surprised by? Mm-hmm. Um, I used to be a well, I had two phases. I have many phases, but one of them was that I used to be a huge raver, like big time raver every weekend uh, at this place called NAF in like South Seattle. And then after that, I had this phase of being a huge gamer. Yeah. Are you still um, in any of those phases or have you moved on? I can still get down with the occasional rave, but it's like not not in the same way as I used to be able to. Um, Gaming is like a thing I wish I could still do, but there's time. Time is fleeting. Yeah, I used to, um, I never got very big into the rave scene, but mm-hmm. I did game. Um, what mostly did you play? in high school. Um, what did I play? Mostly everything. I did a lot of RPGs, mm-hmm. um, RPGs and anything Nintendo related. Cool. But then I went to college, and ever since college, I've just, it's like Alcoholic Anonymous, I've just quit, like, trying, <laughs> and so I've been clean for the past, like, decade. Now. Okay. But, yeah, that's probably about right for me, too. I played a lot of Counter-Strike and Left 4 Dead. Yeah. Yeah. And then, this is, like, totally unrelated, but Katamari Damacy, which I've been really wanting. Katamari is amazing. There's just something about, there's something really satisfying it's about so going good. and going. Apparently, it's on the iPad now. I'm sure it's not as good, but I'm, I mean, I'm going to explore that. Yeah, and for people who are, might not be familiar, Katamari Dormacy is a game where you start off as a little ball, and then you roll things onto you to get bigger and bigger, and uh, you go as big as you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you start by like rolling up a Lego on a table, and then you eventually like roll up the universe. It's the best thing ever. And I think there's a metaphor in there somewhere. <laughs> yes, take over the world. <laughs> yes. yes, one leg at a time. Yes, exactly. Um, my next question is about principles. And what is a principle that you live by? I don't, I don't know. I, I feel like people should just be like authentic to who you are, like whether you like that or not, and just like own it. Yeah, I think those words are simple to say, but so very hard to actually live by. Totally. Um, and then I just have one last question before I let you go. And this one's open-ended. Essentially, is there anything that we didn't talk about today that you'd like to speak to now? Yeah, I would say just, like, if anyone has a cool idea they want to run by us, like, feel free to reach out. We're, like, open to talking. Um, and also, along the lines that I was saying of cultural space preservation, if anyone wants to geek out with me about that, I'm very open to that as well. Okay. And, you know, you're... Um, your contact information or the best way to reach you we will also have in the show notes cool sounds great yeah hit me up also i like random okay actually two more things i like random emails for no reason about anything and i also like to hold up a sign that says talk to us and talk to random people for hours so if anyone wants to do that with me i would also be down okay well there you have it Uh, In the meanwhile, Vivian, thank you so much for talking to me. This has been fun. It has been fun. Thank you. Hey, everyone. This is Kevin again, which is a few more things before you go. First of all, thanks for listening. And if you want to support the show, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple or Google Play. That really helps other people find this show. I hope today's episode inspires you to check out some local films in your area, especially the more experimental stuff and also have a discussion around it. That's it for the show. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time, 
Hope you have some great conversations.